optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now what is the appropriate time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode of The Tim Ferriss Show is brought to you by 99designs. 99designs is a global creative platform that makes it easy for you to find an amazing designer and create designs you'll love. From logos to branding to packaging to books, you name it, they have it. And I've used them for just about everything. 99designs is the go-to creative resource for any budget. I've used them for years now for book covers, for instance, mock-ups of The 4-Hour Body, which went on to become a number one New York Times bestseller, illustrations for the multi-volume Tao of Seneca, including the cover, and many other creative projects. I've been very impressed by the quality of their work. Most recently, I used 99designs to update the illustrations and layout of my five morning rituals ebook. The illustrations worked out great. I loved working with the designer we selected, and I plan to work with him on more projects in the future, and that's something you can do. You don't have to start from scratch every time. And right now, my listeners can get $20 off plus a free $99 upgrade on their first design contest. Simply submit a brief on the site describing what you need, and designers who are interested in your project, often from around the world, will submit concepts for you to choose from. You refine as you go, give feedback, and once you're ready, you choose one to finalize. It's a great way to get started and find the right match. A great designer and a great design at a great price. So head to 99designs.com forward slash Tim to learn more or get started today. You can also see examples of some of the work that I have done with designers on 99designs. So check it out, 99designs.com forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Hiring can be hard. It can be super, super expensive and very painful if you get it wrong. I certainly have had that experience multiple times. I've made a lot of mistakes. I am not eager to repeat any of them. So I try to do as much vetting as possible now on the front end. Today, with more qualified candidates than ever, but certainly more noise than ever, employers need a hiring solution that helps them find the right people for their businesses without wasting time, without wasting money. LinkedIn Jobs provides just that. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills that you specify that you're looking for so you can quickly find and hire the right person. They also look beyond work skills, so collaboration, creativity, adaptability, to connect you with candidates who match your business perfectly. They have endless business-specific data points that help them to massage this, and that which can help you to find the best fit. LinkedIn can make sure your job post gets in front of people you want to hire, people with the skills, qualifications, and other insights that help LinkedIn paint a better picture of potential candidates. It's no wonder that great candidates are hired every eight seconds on average on LinkedIn. That's pretty wild. Every eight seconds. So find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on LinkedIn. Just visit linkedin.com slash Tim for more details. Again, that's linkedin.com slash Tim to get $50 off your first job post. Let's check it out. linkedin.com slash Tim. Terms and conditions do apply. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to Kevin. Oh, he's cheating with a little sip. I'm just having a little sip of the, uh, the whiskey that we poured. Another random show. This is a random show slash crossover Tim Ferriss of 
Wow, I haven't even had any booze yet. Tim Ferriss' show slash wherever this gets cross-posted. This is uh, more like one of your episodes that you do when people, or you drink and people call in. It's kind of like The drunk that. dial episodes. Yeah, drunk dial, yeah. Have you done one of those in a while? I have not done a drunk dial in quite a long time, so we can consider this a drunk dial among friends. Yeah. <laughs> and you're here in person. Like, we're not I doing am. this remote, which you is know, awesome. You know, I have to say that it's, it's really good to see you, man. Yeah, it's and good to see you as well. And it's my first time getting to check out your pad in... Portland. Undisclosed location. Okay, Portland. I wasn't <laughs> sure how secret that was or not. And it made me think as we were prepping to sit down and do a random show how long I've known you because you mentioned that Toaster, your dog, just turned nine. Yeah. He's getting old. Yeah. Er. And I remember when he ate the cables during one recording of the random show. I don't yeah. know if you remember that. Yeah. When he was a little pup. Oh, dude, he was eating everything back then. He, he actually, the scariest thing that ever happened with a Toaster. This shows you how, what a bad parent I am. Um, he ate through an actual entire plugged in outlet. No, sorry. It was not plugged in. It was a heating pad that had, you know, but he ate through the entire thing and I didn't even notice. And I looked down and can you imagine if that was plugged in? Like he, there would be no toaster. He would have turned into a toaster. Right. Exactly. <laughs> He'd have been burnt big time. So we have, we have a bunch of display items <laughs> that are out on this table in front of us. But before we get to that, do you want to describe where we're sitting? Yeah, we're sitting. Um, so I have, ah, uh, gosh, I would say that one of the things that I was, um, that is awesome about living in Portland, Oregon versus living in the Bay area is that, uh, I was actually able to afford a place that is bigger than the size of a little apartment in San Francisco. So I built a house out here in Portland. So it took us, took us three years to build it. Finally got it done. And I think when you're like, you know, well, I'm not 12 because I guess I would have wanted alcohol. But when you're like 18 years old, you always think like, how cool would it be to have like a secret passageway that leads into like a, a bar or something, right? And a speakeasy. Yeah, a little speakeasy. And, you know, I always wanted uh, something like that. And we were going to put in a little entertainment room that would be bar slash, you know, listening to vinyl, like a place to go and just kind of hang out anyway. And so I talked to the architect and I was like, can you put like a secret door to get in here? And so we built this like fake bookcase and uh, it kind of swings open and then you have um, a bar. So we're in our, our little bar here. It's really uh, minimalist, very Japanese in feel. Reminds me of some of the bars we've been to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was definitely in inspired. Tokyo. Yeah. And uh, what was that one bar we went to? Gen no something or other. Something. Bar. Uh, there's Bar Gen, which is. It might be Bar Gen. Yeah. And the bartender has something like six or eight seats inside. And amazingly enough, I had met him many years before and we sat down. You might remember this a couple of years yeah. ago in Tokyo. And he's like. I think I know you. And I was like, I think I know you. And it turned out that for the food, the food marathon that I did for the four hour chef, which was 26.2 dishes in 24 hours. And these are large portions. Generally, we went to a restaurant called brush stroke. I think it was called. And at the time he was their superstar master bartender who would chip these softball sized, uh, ice spheres by hand with a little ice pick. That's one of like, the best parts of Japan is when they make their ice by hand with, with a pick. Very high labor. Yeah. And this has that feel. And in fact, if you look at the wall, I'll try to paint a picture for those of you listening. 
there is be this beautiful black wood behind the bar where the floating shelves are, which have down lighting coming up onto these beautiful bottles of various types of alcohol and the liqueur and so on. What is the texture or the technique behind what I'm looking at? It has, I'm not going to say scalloped, but if you could imagine if you had pure black slate in a, in a shower on the wall and water rivulets were running down that wall, it kind of has that look. It's shiny. What is that? Well, it's, this is a a wood that, um, I first learned about in Japan where they take this, um, these planks of wood and they actually use it for, um, the exterior of, of houses and they burn it. And so they actually take a torch to it, set it on fire, let it burn for a certain amount of time. It gets all the oils out and kind of just really hardens the wood. They, uh, put it out and then it has this really beautiful age kind of burnt wood look to it. So we decided to use that rather than have like wallpaper or something in here. We decided to use that as um, the backdrop. So it's all this like uh, Japanese burnt wood. Um, so it, it does, when you shine light on it, it looks like there's kind of like water coming down it or like a little scaly or, but it's just really beautiful stuff. It's gorgeous. And we will put a link in the show notes to the actual technique and you can yeah. see how it's done because it's also used, obviously, as you can see here, outside of Japan. I mean, it's a technique. That I actually be, had this brought oh, in. Oh, these were brought in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't know if they do it here. <laughs> All right. Well, so if you want to go super honmono, honmono is like the real deal, the real McCoy in Japanese, they would say honmono. Uh, and if, so if you want to go real, real super honmono, then you can bring the wood from Japan. Well, the nice thing about doing it and bringing it in from Japan, honestly, is that <laughs> the cost. Well, no, <laughs> we weren't doing an entire house, right? This is not our exterior. It's one little room, right? So it really wasn't that expensive to, to bring it in. <laughs> and what are we what are we drinking? I haven't had a sip yet. All right, am I skipping ahead? No, no, no. Let's do it. Let's do it. So, so what is this? Um, to kick things off, um, this is a very special Japanese whiskey, which I've never tried. Yeah, it's called the Card Series. And so, um, essentially, what you're looking at here is this is the Joker, and it's done by um, Ichiro's Malt. And so, this has. Um, Basically, what happened is they had all these whiskeys, 52 different whiskeys, that were put into barrels and then kind of forgotten about for a while. And then the uh, distillery went under. Um, they found the barrels and they decided to put it into 52 different bottles with different card faces. So this is the Joker right here. Um, and essentially, every card has a different quantity. So this one here... Um, this is the least rare, um, with 3,690 bottles of the Joker that were produced. And the most rare, I think were like 50 bottles or something like that. Um, so if you want to collect them, you can get the entire, you know, 52 cards and they're really kind of hard to find because it became very culty and, um, sought after. And now you can find them up at auction and things like this. So this was, um, a little gift that, uh, to me that I tend to consume, um, rarely when I have good friends in town, um, because they are really expensive, but, um, you know, you always got to have a couple awesome ones in on the top shelf. Well, cheers, man. Yeah. Cheers. It's, uh, it's so nice to see you and your family. Yeah. And to see it's different, isn't it? The previously grievously irresponsible Kevin Rose as a doting father is is quite a it's different twilight zone experience. Well, it's nice actually. Like honestly, the other night when you guys got in, um, you know, we like had a dinner, 
like, you know, didn't go crazy on the wine, just had a little bit of wine, uh, jumped in the sauna, uh, got in the hot tub and like called it a night at like 10, you know? Yeah. And so like, that's kind of what you have to do. We have to wake up for kids at 7am. So this is a spectacular, isn't that amazing? Spectacular. Yeah. It's, it's really good stuff. Single malt whiskey. This is really nice. And I'm not a whiskey guy. I hate to admit because that makes me sort of demotes me 17 levels on the manliness scale for some people, but there are a few types of whiskey that I like. This is one, and then you happen to oh, have... Oh, dude, I have the Six of Hearts up there. That one was another gift um, where I was went to a tasting where they were doing the card series tasting, and they had... You, know, you can see how much is left in that bottle. I mean, probably one finger worth, you know, in terms of height. Um, there was probably two fingers in total when I got it, and the lady that was doing the tasting was like, you can just take the bottle with you, like take it home. And the bottles alone sell for a... Like that one, I think is about a fifteen thousand dollar bottle, which is crazy. <laughs> and um, just take the bottle. You're like, I will. Thank I, you. I'm like, that's like four grand right there. Yeah. Like, absolutely. Like, thank you so much. So it was, it was amazing. <laughs> so um, those are the only two bottles. I, I do not collect these. I think it's a uh, and the pappy up there is is also. Uh, that's that's good stuff as well. That is just incredible stuff. Yeah, and I also started collecting the uh, the Japanese whiskeys, like the Hibiki aged Hibiki. You can see up there as well. Um, so what's interesting about Hibiki, and, and Tim, you probably remember this, but like when we were going to Japan back in the day, Japanese whiskeys, you could go in Tokyo and, and down in the um, the train station. There's actually one of my favorite places to buy Japanese whiskey. And you go in there, and I was buying a bottles of Hibiki thirty year for right around you could get them for like four hundred dollars for an entire bottle and it was i mean that's a lot of money for a bottle like it's crazy right and you buy it um and you let your friends try it and it's a crazy 30 year japanese whiskey and then probably about seven or eight years later they started running out of it because it became very popular and now they don't produce it at all did it become popular with japanese people or was with, it with foreigners foreigners yeah. yeah so foreigners got like they started realizing that japanese were doing whiskey at a really high level um and then they bought up all the 30 and so they ran out and so now what's crazy is a bottle that you know you know is just a few hundred dollars and that same goes for the um the 17 up there which they also discontinued which i heard they're bringing back for a short amount of time um, but anyway, the bottles went like 10 X in price. And so now I, I think those are like four grand a bottle or something like oh that. It's, it's crazy. That but if wild. you were buying it back in the day, it was like, nobody knew, you know, it was just like, Oh wow, this is just a really crazy expensive. I'll just get one bottle. I'll try and, you know, it makes me wonder also if there's something to be said for developing a taste for whatever is unpopular at the time or unrecognized. Right. right? So yeah. if, if Japanese whiskey is really popular, you could, you could look at whiskey from a much lesser known location and get the best of that. Right. Or you could look at something that maybe has lost its sex appeal temporarily, like sake. We did a, a tasting trip through part of Japan. You must remember that. Well, of course. And we had... You're talking about for my birthday. Yeah. yeah. And we had the sake sort of right out of the... Oh, God, that was so I'm, good. I'm not going to say barrels, but uh, right out of the containers. Yeah. And I still have some with of that, the by ladle. The and... It was stellar and uh, very, very, very reasonable in terms of price. Yeah. You could really get something that was only found in Japan, beautifully done, something that you could share with friends on a special occasion that would not break the bank. Right. I mean, the thing about, you know this, Tim, way better than I do, but like the thing about, I think I love most about Japan is that you can take any 
hobby or any profession, and they do it at the highest level, right? So it can be aged coffee. Remember when we had that aged coffee? Yes, I do. Uh, mm-hmm. It's you know thirty year old aged coffee by a little guy in a shop, and and there's. Um, you know, six or seven other people sitting around the table. Good news, delicious. Bad news, it's a 45-minute pour over. Right. It's a really <laughs> long process. Like, you have to sit there and wait. But there's something amazing about being able to relax and sit there and wait for it and appreciate that person for what their, their craft. And we don't do that in the States, man. We don't have that appreciation for people, individual people, doing something at a high level. And you know what's awesome about that is that guy is recession-proof, right? Like, there's nothing's going to automate his job away. It's the for commodity sure. stuff that's getting completely destroyed by technology, you know? Well, you know, it's, it makes me think of something that, uh, as a general theme, I bring up a lot when I'm talking to people who are starting businesses or thinking of starting businesses, and they have a high level of skill in anything. And almost every person has a superpower, something that is, at, at the very least, easier for them to do mm-hmm. than for other most right. other people. They may recognize it, they may not recognize it, but when I am talking to friends or acquaintances who are thinking of, say, starting a business, it's part of the reason why I always like to start with the conversation of what if you charged more than everyone else? Like, What would you have to create that Mm -hmm. is sort of based on the superpower related to it? that would then be worth a price that is at the highest end, in part because it makes you recession-proof, right? Like, mm-hmm. you have to look at things through such a different lens. And the market doesn't have to be large to have a successful coffee shop like that. Right. The market isn't large, right? But this guy is such a specialist and has ritualized something into sort of the plug-and-play cult format for you know, people like you yeah. or, or like me. Who, I mean, you like that shit. You got I horse, do. like, saddles and shit at your house I do. you collect. I do. You know that? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I'm an unapologetic Japanophile. Uh, and, and I can see the, the good, the beautiful, the bad, and the ugly in Japan as I can, say, in the U.S. But uh, the attention to detail, mm-hmm. the beautiful and bordering on pathological obsession to detail just scratches every itch for me. Yeah. And for that reason, you mentioned the saddles. I don't think I've ever talked about this, but when I I don't spend uh, a whole lot of money on toys uh, and and I, I do spend money on uh, a handful of things, uh, but it's been very slow in development, just growing up with uh, a family that was very, very money, uh, sort of scarcity-minded in, in a way. Um, but for the four-hour body, when I was writing the four-hour body, I remember promising myself, if, not if, at that point it was, when I finish writing this book, if it is number one, New York Times, not number two, but if it's number one, I'll reward myself with buying a Japanese antique of some type, which I'd never, I'd never bought any antiques of any type. And love Japan, have this, uh, have always had, I mean, for decades, this obsessive fascination with martial arts. And years before, 
uh, around the same time, actually, I was exploring a television series that involved doing horseback archery in Japan, which people can find online, actually, if they search trial by fire. I think it was trial by fire. You can find this weird video of me in Japan doing horseback archery. And so I decided to get a saddle. That was what I would reward myself with. And so I ended up with one of these saddles. And in fact, one was really cheap. Some of these auctions are so weird. I haven't participated in many of them. But you'll see the unpredictability of auction dynamics, where you'll you'll see one item that for whatever reason has like two, uh, you know, big swinging dick muckety mucks who are just punching each other in the face to win with the ego reward of having this item, and so it goes for five times what was anticipated. And then there's another one because that happened like knocks out a bunch of folks and it's just empty. Like no one's doing anything. So I ended up getting two saddles kind of for the price of one because who the hell wants Japanese saddles? Turns out not a large market. (laughs) (laughs) Wooden Japanese saddles. Uh, Yeah, wooden Japanese saddles. And I love them. They give me so much joy every day. And uh, something I've been thinking about, I want to give uh, someone credit. uh, And I I think I'm getting the pronunciation right here, but Adeo Rossi. Uh, who's been involved in the startup scene for a very long time. I think it's Founder Institute. Am I getting that right? Maybe not. In any case, but Adea was recently in Austin, where I live, and he was doing a panel with a number of folks who were all very, very good. And it was a discussion of mental health. And he said something that I wrote down because it makes sense to me. And I think I've bumped into this occasionally. And I'm like, oh, there is some truth to this. And that is to uh, the benefits of looking at things in the world and decisions, things you create and so on, not just through the lens of is this good or bad, uh, which can often be an ethical choice, right? Like, is this good for me in the world? Is this bad for me in the world? But also through the lens of is this beautiful or not? And I think the, the Japanese pay a lot of attention to this, right? Like, you can get a cup of coffee, perfectly great cup of coffee in many places in Japan. But like, can this guy we're talking about, for instance, just create a beautiful, unusual experience that you talk about 10 years later, you know, case, case in point, he can. And that's, there's a value to that. It's hard to really smack a label on it, but there's really, there's something uh, in the essence of that, that, that I've grown to appreciate more over time. I hope some of that starts to carry over more into the United States and our, you know, appreciation of that as a culture, because I feel like you know, as a technologist, like I, I can just see it 10, 15 years from now, like automation in a serious way is coming to pretty much every industry and every job, right? And if it's something that can be taught in a very easy, predictable way, it will be automated, right? It's the stuff that is creative, the stuff that is unique, the stuff that is hard to do and produce at mass at scale that will stand out and you'll always be secure. Now, you're not going to make, you know, that guy that's doing the, the 30, 40 year old age coffee, he's pouring, you know, 15 of those a day or whatever. The guy's not in a mansion, like living it up in Tokyo. Right. Right. But you know, he takes a lot of pride in that. I think that if you can be content and, and, and really believe in and enjoy what you're, what you're producing and it fulfills you, yeah. then that's all you really need. Yeah. And uh, Japan's a, a great, in a way, it's sort of like a an art exhibit or a zoo of 
pocket obsessions. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Like you can walk through every alleyway. Na- you can walk through exactly. You can walk through certain neighborhoods down alleyways, and each shop is. I mean, the size of a broom closet, right? But specializes in. There's one that specializes in like, I'm making this up, but like succulent display containers that you put on the wall in a small room, like a bathroom, and that's right. the entire shop. Right. That's all they do. Yeah, and I love that. Yeah, they it's go great. really deep down one particular little avenue that is their own yeah. that they can own. You know. Yeah, totally. What else? What else appeals to you most? about Japan, because I think there are many things I could talk about that appeal to me about Japan. I've lived there. I have uh, a a total love affair, long-standing love for the language. What appeals to you about Japan? Uh, Well, I think the cleanliness is a huge piece of it. You could eat off the ground pretty much everywhere in Tokyo, right? And it's a massive city. It is unbelievably clean, which, not not to interrupt, but I will, which reflects not just a priority on the state or government level, but a collective behavior. Right. That doesn't happen top down. It's a collective behavior. Right. I don't know how they, they kind of cultivate that. Like, how does that, you know, at a young age, how do, you, how do you kind of like make sure that carries on to the next generation, right? Yeah, that's a great question. I, 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 I'm not, I don't have a ready answer for that, but I would say that you know, very often, I mentioned personal superpowers earlier. They're very often right next to our greatest defects. Like they're somehow also very close to our our greatest weaknesses. It's very frequent. And I think in Japan, there is this light and dark side like to the say, shame. Side? Shame, yeah. exactly. I was going to bring up shame. So embarrassment, losing face, shame, bringing shame upon your family, very big deal. Right. And like being a member, I don't know, like they're embarrassed for you, which is crazy. Like, Sometimes, like when you do something that's like awkward, they'll like rush out to give you something so that you're not embarrassed because they're <laughs> embarrassed for you. Oh yeah, there are multiple levels of like recursive humiliation in <laughs> Japan. It's it's like the just like the language and the, the culture has so many complex etiquette rules around hierarchy, and uh, there are there's uh, honoring language. There is. Uh, what you would call in English, I guess, humbling language for yourself, which is self-deprecating. There are all these different layers of grammar and words that change based on how you relate to someone else. And it's the same with embarrassment. I think that's uh, something that they've teased out into a very complex set of rules and awkward interactions. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think the thing that sealed it for me is one time I was waiting for an Uber out there and um, in Tokyo, and I was looking around and I saw this old man coming outside of his house, and he had a, a rag in his hand and he was polishing his mailbox, <laughs> like like seriously, like putting. And I was there waiting like twenty minutes for the Uber, and the guy's like polishing it nonstop, and I'm like, wow, yeah, like, I don't polish my mailbox, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know? It's just like. That, that's like next level kind of like commitment to cleanliness and just respect for your items. Like how often do we just like throw shit out and just like don't recycle and uh, I wish we had more of that in our culture. But, you know, you're right. It's a double-edged sword. There's, there's a shame component as well. Yeah, but it's, it's worth exposing yourself to if you have the opportunity or the means to do so. Uh, I, I get asked a lot, what is your favorite place to travel? And it's an impossible question for me to answer because it really depends on 
China? For what? Yeah, China. <laughs> I love parts of China. I've had great trips to China. I've spent time in Taiwan, but there, there are also some really rough. I mean, having lived in Beijing, where I decided it was healthier not to run outside because my I would just blow soot out my nose afterwards. We had the worst trip. Well, we, we had, the we worst, had a, it was we, awesome, but we had, we had a tricky trip. Yeah, where you got completely scammed with artwork. Yeah, well, not only that, but think about well, we were, Tim and I went out to like the middle. <laughs> there of There is a random show. If you search for like random show China edition, yeah, you'll see that you you can flash back a couple of years. <laughs> a couple of years that was like a long time ago, eight years ago yeah, or something. Anyway, nuts. there was maggots that we were having to shit into, and it was really disgusting. It was a rough trip. It was yeah. rough. <laughs> it was a rough trip. Yeah, uh, and there are many answers that I could give. Right? I mean, I. I have really enjoyed some trips in China. I've really enjoyed, but it depends on what you want to get out of the trip. Right. Right. If you want to feel totally lost like an alien in on a new planet, but at the same time be in almost no danger whatsoever. Japan's perfect. hundred percent. Tokyo. Yes. If, If you want to visit an alien landscape, Yes. And really feel like an alien. You will get off the plane and everything will be alien. And in all the right ways. Like people, the cool thing about Japan is no one's a dick to you if you don't know Japanese. Which is amazing. Which is amazing. If you think about it. Everybody's super friendly. And, you know, obviously if you're going to be a good tourist, as you should, you should pick up like, you know, a half dozen little phrases that you can say to people. But outside of that, you really don't need to know the language. And and uh, they have the most... Uh, from a linguistic perspective, the most layup, friendly, overreactive uh, encouragement you can imagine, right? Let's contrast this. I love Paris. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. Oh, yeah. But there are certain people, actually, this is more common in in Montreal, not to throw them under the bus, but if, if you don't speak really good French, that you'll kind of get scoffed at. And it's it's very and hard, dude. I have gotten it like taxi drivers in Paris are dicks, like straight <laughs> up. Like you know that. <laughs> so right. So if you, in other words, even if you speak, if you're eighty percent of the way there, if you're a B plus student, you're still gonna have a tough time impressing anyone yeah. or getting a pat on the back. Right. Whereas in Japan, if you can, and uh, when we were there with a couple of friends, including our mutual friend Tony Conrad. Tony thought this was hilarious. I'm like, imagine for a second what you sound like to them. If you can imagine somebody in the most broken English possible being like, right. can you, where is hunger bathroom, please? You know, that's basically what you sound like in Japanese to them. Right. And, but you say that and you sound like sloth from the Goonies and they're like, oh, and they do give it this like hand clap for like performing like a seal at SeaWorld. And it's, it feels really good. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, all you need to know is, is good morning and where's the bathroom. And and you're, you're, you're like the Michael Jordan of Japanese to most folks you're going to encounter. Uh, what else do we have here? We got we got yeah. some other random items laid well, out. The thing is, with this, people have listened to it before. We've done these random shows where we talk about books that we're reading, we talk about products that we're liking, like things like that. So, I mean, I just grabbed a couple things that are actually there. I might as well continue down the Japanese theme. So, I moving to Portland have been into forest bathing, which is started in Japan, 
And the idea is that there are so many people because of the work culture out there that they actually prescribe, doctors prescribe going into the forest and using it as a, a way to walk and relax and unwind. And there's been a bunch of research that's been done in these forests um, trying to figure out what is it that's dropping people's cortisol levels, that's dropping, like, uh, increasing their, um, uh, what is the killer cell count? Like, they, they did all these studies where they drew blood and they checked on people that were walking in the forest, and all these different biomarkers improved. And so there were a few things that they were able to conclude. One, there's a certain bacteria in the soil that's supposed to be really good for you um, that's in Japan, and... Uh, the second is, uh, I'm sure just disconnecting and being in the forest is a big part of it, but also the scents and the aromas that the trees were putting off. And so um, there is a few trees in particular that they pulled out um, and distilled down into essential oils. And then in the hospitals, they would diffuse them out so the, and they saw a dramatic decrease in people getting sick at the hospitals in terms of like people getting flus and colds and things like that. And so I basically read this entire book on forest bathing and decided to buy a few of these essential oils and use them. Um, you know, you can either diffuse them in your room or you can uh, pour them over, you know, hot coals in, in a sauna. Um, hinoki is obviously a, a very um, popular tree out there. So I got some hinoki oil. Um, and there's, I think there's four or five different ones. Um, another one is a Hiba wood. This is another one here that you can smell and they smell fantastic. I don't, I'm not here to sell you essential oils. I don't have, I don't have any, I don't have any brands to recommend, but they're, I mean, smell that. It smells like a Japanese spa. Which one is that? That's the Hiba wood. Hiba wood. That does smell fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's really cool stuff. But um, anyway, so there's a, a couple different books out there on forest bathing. You can just search Amazon for that. Um, if you're really into just trying to figure out how to slow down a little bit and learn more about the kind of Japanese way of disappearing into the forest and walking in the forest for longevity and health, um, you can learn a lot about it in this book and they, they outline all of the different essential oils there. Do you remember which one you read? I do. If you were to, I can, you know what? I can pull it up and <laughs> I just searched forest bathing on Google and the, Third result, well, let's go in order. Four. These are the su suggested results. Force bathing, force bathing book. Force bathing Portland is number three. No way. Three. Well, that's because it knows you here. It, like, it's using GPS. Oh, fuckers. So creepy. Well, we did some force bathing today, which was nice. We did. I have to say, Portland is one of the, certainly from a mycological, right, from a fungi mushroom perspective, one of the most incredible force bathing opportunities out there. Yeah, this is the book that I, I read right here, um, Forest Bathing, How Trees Can Help You Find Health and Happiness um, by Dr. Quing Lee. And so that was one of the researchers that was um, doing all of this out in, uh, out in Tokyo. So yeah. Forest Bathing in Japanese is Shinrin-yoku, Shinrin-yoku, S-H-I-N-R-I-N-yoku. Yoku is the bath portion of that. What uh, what is, is that one of your items right over yeah, there? Yeah, I don't really want to talk about that. All right, we're going to skip We have that. so many oils. This is another <laughs> oil. Another it's oil. like a beard oil I use. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> we can link to the show notes. So, you know, one of the one of the books that I am rereading, and I don't reread a lot of books, but this is one that I've read probably five or six times in the last 18 months, is one that came through a recommendation from someone you also know, Peter Maluk. Mm. And he was a podcast guest. 
mostly involved in finance and wealth management and things along those lines, investing. But the book he recommended was Awareness by a Jesuit priest, also, as I recall, a psychotherapist named Anthony DeMello. Have you ever read this book? No, I haven't. He, and he mentioned it somewhat briefly in our conversation. And he, but the, the sales pitch, which wasn't intended to be a pitch, that got me was, every time I read this book for, for a few weeks afterwards, I feel an incredible sense of peace. And I'm paraphrasing, but he hmm. said something like that. And I was like, that's an odd statement coming out coming from the rest of the conversation yeah it was a a sharp contrast to a lot of the subject matter and i thought interesting all right well awareness and i looked it up and i think the subtitle there are two different subtitles for some reason but one of the subtitles is the the promises and perils of reality or something like that i was like interesting subtitle and read this book pairs very well with sam harris's waking up app actually but uh has a lot of sort of oh fuck caliber aha moments really? in this book from from the perspective of self awareness and distinguishing between say the labels and stories you use from yourself and the self. Huh. Uh, it's also a very funny book. It's uh, effectively a transcript of lessons or uh, weekend courses that were given by Anthony DeMello and. As I am always, I was very skeptical going into this book because I thought it might just be another collection of woo-woo, hand-wavy bullshit because a lot of these books are. Yeah, And it it really had an impact on my Crazy. life immediately and uh, has become this sort of uh, reboot in the sense that occasionally, I'm sure everyone has, has had the experience that the, your phone is just kind of slow, things aren't working, maybe your bars are dropping, shit's just going kind of wonky and you're like, you know what? I need to restart my phone. Yeah, you have real phone issues. Like, I'm in outside of that. Like, I can't text you. It turns into like those green texts. Oh, yeah. My phone needs an update. This is a very old phone. I tend to, I'm very <laughs> dull edge when it comes to phones. I wait until I want as many bugs to be fixed, <laughs> found and fixed with new versions of iOS, new Such phones. Such an old man thing to say, oh, dude. It like, is. Give me the old... I have an iPhone 6S or whatever this is. It's ancient. Yeah. Uh, so eventually, I'll get a new phone. But the but the the point that I'm making is when your phone isn't working, when you're having trouble with your computer, when you're having trouble with iCal, the, one of the first things that someone is going to ask you if you go to a Genius Bar or deal with a tech, um, sort of tech-savvy person, is when's the last time you rebooted this? When's the last time you quit and restarted and for me, this book, Awareness by Anthony DeMello, has that effect. That's awesome. Dude, this psychologically like, you're and emotionally. You're going to sell 100,000 copies of this by saying this. It sounds awesome. And I'm happy to. This, this is one of a handful of books that I now buy by the dozen in paperback. It's a short book. It's a very fast read that I buy by the dozen to have in my house so I can give them to friends. I, I literally have an entire shelf in my guest bedroom I can tell you what the other books are. Well, I appreciate uh, you. I, this is the first time I'm hearing about. It. Where's my copy, dude? It's like, what the, <laughs> well, I you have give to visit all my to, friends. <laughs> yeah, you don't understand. I've done some of them. <laughs> my friends who visit Austin. You, yeah. I know you have an entire brood, uh, you know, sort of pending soccer team that you need to cart around the world. But the uh, oh, it's awareness, not audible, dude. It's not on Audible. You don't, you don't see it there, uh, right? If it's not on Audible, I probably tried to 
get the rights at some point. Did they, you? That, no, then I you must should. not have. But Awareness by Anthony DeMello, you can get it on Kindle. That yeah. much I know. Well, I have the new Kindle right there. I was, that's one of Great. the things I was yeah. going to talk about. This book has a probably 90% hit rate with people I recommend it to. That's awesome. It, it's really good. The other books that I have are How to Change Your Mind, Michael yeah, Pollan. So of I, have course. Whole, I have a whole rack of that book. And then also... The Gift, which is a collection of poems by Hafez, hmm. H-A-F-I-Z, which uh, which is just a, a wonderful and very funny collection of of poems. And uh, I'm not the person historically who has read poetry <laughs> Yeah, by well, any stretch. That's so crazy. Are you starting to get into poetry? Uh, I, in the last few years, I've been reading a few poets, not many, and also become very open to uh it seems it seems like maybe unrefined poetry in the sense that i i've i've been turned off of poetry many times in the past yeah i think because there's a there's a breed of poet or a breed of poetry fan who seems to be similar to the hoity toity fan of say abstract art where it's like if if it if you need an explanation then you don't get it right kind of thing there's a lot of poetry where i read it and i'm like i don't fucking get it right and i'm not into that kind of poetry right but hafez is makes perfect sense to me um uh, you know maybe spending a little bit of time in psychedelic space helps with that <laughs> uh, and then poetry like mary oliver mary oliver's amazing i've really become a huge fan of, of her work a handful of folks. I, I I don't have a lot of exposure. But w- have you been reading poetry? Well, I just got a book on how to read poetry, actually, um, that I thought was pretty interesting. I went down to Powell's um, probably just a month or so ago, and I was... Uh, Powell's is a... For people that don't Powell's know... Powell's is amazing. It's it's like one of the best... Well, I, th- I would say it's the best bookstore in the United States, for sure. Um, it's actually a, still a bookstore that's... Independent bookstore that's thriving and doing really well here in Portland. Uh, it's massive. It's like the size of like a Costco or something. Um, well, it they, is. It is truly enormous. Yeah, and they they have a they have a whole poetry section. And you know, for me, I've I've always been a fan of. I, I invested in a company called Jor um, that is, does um, guided journaling on iOS and iPad. How do you spell it? J O U R. It's like short for journaling. Um, so they do these like encrypted guided journals that you can do. Um, and the reason I wanted to get into that is I've just read about the benefits of actually kind of just opening up your heart and pouring out a little bit of what's going on inside as a way to be very uh, therapeutic and just kind of release certain things that you may be holding on to. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, obviously that's a big part of poetry as well. And so I was like, well, I'd like to read what other people are, how they're releasing their emotions and also maybe eventually get into this myself. Um, not in a way that I would ever share publicly, but you know, just something like, I think that you and I are the same in that we're both like, want to experiment with different things like all the time, sure. right? Trying new things. And so this is just one of those things where I was walking down the aisle and I was like, sure, I'm going to pick up a book on poetry. Why not? You know, grab, grab the gift. Okay. It's, it's really good. Cool. And it's funny. The guy is a really funny fucker. Like he's very funny and uh, very irreverent. Uh, actually got into a lot of, a fair amount of trouble uh, back in the day uh, from present day Iran and just you read you read 50 pages and you're like if this guy were alive today he would be in my top 10 people i would want to have 
drinks with. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, he's very, very funny and profound. And it's it requires a, a very high level of sensitivity and artistry and wordsmithing. Of course, these are translated by Daniel Ladinsky in this case uh, to achieve that. It's a very hard effect to produce in such a short format well, I think. Yeah. Uh, what else are you reading? Uh, well, I will say or that have read the thing in the recently. last three months that probably, well, it just consumed me this summer, um, was a course uh, by Michael Singer, uh, who wrote The Untethered Soul. Mm-hmm. So he um, has a course over um, that was on uh, Sounds True. You know that, that they're like a publisher? Yeah. So he has a course that's a video course, um, and it's a five uh, session, like hour and a half, two hours per, per video. Uh, no, sorry, eight session, eight or nine session, hour and a half, two hours per video um, on surrender and just really how to embrace surrender and incorporate it in your everyday life and how that is one of the most powerful things that you can do and how it just really, really simplified um, letting things unfold for me. How do you, how do you, or could you give an example of how you might use this concept of surrender uh, without being becoming driftwood in the flow of life? Sure. Right? Because it's sort of in, for some people, myself included, has a, a connotation, which is from my own experience, I suppose, or just perception of passivity. Sure. Right. Yeah, that I get did, that. That like oh, you've lost your free will and you're just sort of an impassive creature taking whatever life throws at you. Yeah. Well, I think it's well. There's a couple things. One of the things that I, I appreciated about the course and when I, I'm still continuing to learn because I'm going back and listening to it. You know, it's good when you're going back and listen to it like two or three times. And one of the things that he talks about is just this idea that I think we can all agree on that we have these little um, programs that are essentially in us that uh, have been either handed down to us by teachers or parents or whatever it may be that are how we interpret the world as it hits us. So, uh, for example, if you were um, cheated on uh, by a girl in the past and something kind of comes close to that um, by a new person that you're dating, um, maybe they stayed out too late and didn't call you or something like this like happens that, that activates that little scar that you have, um, you can then go and really work yourself up, right? And that applies to so many different things. I mean, it's like, you know, we were talking about coffee earlier. I can enjoy an amazing single origin coffee from a Japanese artisan, but you hand that same cup of coffee to someone that's Mormon that has been told that coffee is a sin and it's against your religion, you're going to have a completely different experience right. when, when trying to consume that beverage, right? So there are all these little things, these little programs that have been installed, whether we know it or not, you know, and a lot of them we don't know. Um, so it can just be a reaction to something that has previously happened to us in our childhood or even, you know, w- w- through our parents yelling at us. Like, uh, I'm thankfully, I'm the opposite of my father. My father was a very verbally aggressive thing, uh, uh, human. And so um, when I hear certain types of aggression like that, I tend to kind of back away from it because it, it it's hitting that stuff inside of me. Yeah. Um, so his whole thing is this, this idea of surrender is really being able to identify when that is happening and seeing when that's happening and understanding which programs aren't really serving you any longer and being able just to release and let them go. 
And when you can release and let go of those little scars that we've been accumulating over, you know, decades, we can just become free. And it's so amazing when you can finally just rest and let the world kind of unfold and not get pissed off about the person that cuts you off in traffic or any number of little events that happen throughout the day. Um, and he has really some amazing, really compelling examples throughout this entire course. But it's, it's helped me really examine my reactions. And it goes hand in hand with meditation in that, that way, you know? You're going to love awareness. Awesome. Yeah, yeah it yeah, sounded the, like these, it. When, these sound like birds of a feather, very complimentary, yeah. uh, very complimentary ways of, of feeding your mind and emotions. And uh, you've been talking about this, this surrender course for a while now yeah. in our conversations. So I'm definitely uh, intending to check it out. And the, uh, the untethered soul, his book yeah. has been recommended to me on a number of occasions. So I'm going to, I think you really it, enjoyed this course because it's, you're going to sit back and it's, it's video and I would just let it play when I had some downtime and, um, there's just, it's funny what people think of it, your reaction was the exact same one that I had initially where, um, surrender is this, this, this kind of passive thing. And it's like, gosh, it seems like it feels like a weak thing. Actually, if you think yeah. about it, like you're surrendering, Oh, that's a, that's the weakest thing. But think about it this way. It is the hardest thing to do. Someone cuts you off in traffic and you're like that mother, <laughs> right? Like, What's harder to get angry at them or to surrender and just let that pass through you rather than hit you? Yeah. It's hitting you in some way, right? And so it's not, this course is not about like having people step all over you because obviously that would be a horrible thing and no one wants that. But it's, it's really about understanding and being able to choose and let go of, of probably 98% of it, right? Like there's still th things that I get amped up about. If so certain things aren't going um, well in our country or there's certain things that, you know, people are getting mistreated or, you know, there's things that will really still charge me to do things. But I realize now after taking this course and kind of revisiting it, that most things you realize really don't have a whole lot to do with you. If someone's really pissed off at you, they're dealing with something. Yeah. Why should it then come out and affect you and your being, you know, yeah. you should have compassion for that person because they're going through a rough time. You know, there's a way to flip this stuff that gets really interesting. Yeah. And even if you don't have compassion, just taking the second to pause and recognize yeah. that it's not serving you. Like there's, it's right. not going to translate into any action that is productive. Yeah. <laughs> like what are you going to do? Chase the guy down and cut you off and like get out of your car at his office that he's running into because he got into a fight with his wife and punch him in the throat. I mean, right. what do you, <laughs> people not, do that. I, people do, but it's, it's not like that. That's well, especially some, bad energy allocation. And right? something Just, that's predictable. Like that's going to always happen to you. It's like, that's like getting cut off is going to happen to you for the rest of your life, you know, hundreds of times. Like, why are you going to get so charged up about it every single time? It's ridiculous, you know? Yeah, for sure. I'm excited to hear what you think of awareness. Yeah. It'll pair very well with that. Yeah, I, I love stuff like that. It's just like, uh, you know, any way that we can just kind of uh, get a little better understanding. And to your point earlier about Sam Harris's course, um, I think that Sam has the best uh, meditation course for people that want to take it seriously. You know, I made a meditation app with it, the thinking of just doing a, a free unguided timer and some very basic instructions. But like, that's great if you want something that's free. Like Sam's is a paid course. And I think that he goes deeper 
And uh, I, I, I love it. It's not, it's not just window dressing. It's like yeah. really taking meditation seriously. I know you completed the 50 days as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just finished up the 50 days and I, I thought it was phenomenal. Yeah. It's super strong. And uh, you know, they're different, different, different strokes for different folks in terms of meditation styles. Oh, so for sure. And it's, you know, his, his style is not for everybody. Uh, but for the right person, it, it, it's, it's really helpful as a skill progression as a, as a sort of logical progression of skill development. What am, what am I holding up here? This is something might as well. Oh yes. Might as well. Are we going to talk about this? Yeah, let's talk about it. Might as well talk about it. Uh, this is something that I've been downing (laughs) a a lot of since I got to your house, but, uh, and, and on it, on the can, it says DRAM, D-R-A-M. And then the particular, so that's the brand and then cardamom and black tea blow it no sugar zero calories what is this thing that i'm holding yeah so this is interesting and um this is a company that actually someone that i know here in portland was like you got to try this sparkling because she a chef she knows yeah she's a chef and she knows that i drink sparkling water and she's like you gotta try this sparkling beverage like it'll change your world and i was like well why there's so many of them out there like every whole foods aisle or whatever has a, you know a hundred of these, right? And she goes, no, this is different. They're actually bitters makers. So remember like bitters and cocktails and they create these concentrates um, from real herbs and spices and like very bitters focused and then put them in sparkling water. So it's not like you're, you're never going to see on the side of like one of these cans, like natural flavorings. Like that's not what they do. Like they're, they're hand pressing their ginger. They're doing all, they make these zero calorie beverages. And I would say, I don't know if you agree with me, but it's like an order of magnitude better than anything you find in the store. They're really, really good. They're really good. And the black uh, tea and cardamom is my favorite, by the way. I think that's, yeah, this one I tried a bunch. This is my, this is the, my, the current fave. You have an entire refrigerator full of these. And you and Tony, who I mentioned earlier, yeah. brought this to my attention. I'd never tried it before that. But and we should say, just in full disclosure, we're looking at it, and I've talked to the founders, and we're, we're considering investing. I, neither yeah. you or I have invested nope. in this company. No, we, we haven't. Uh, but whether, whether I invest or not, uh, it's really good stuff. Yeah, it's really good it's stuff. Really and they do solid. a CBD one. Can I say that you tried it? You're okay with that. Sure, yeah, I'm fine with that. Shit. Um, Wait, what was that? I said you do psychedelics and shit. Like you're fine <laughs> saying you did a little CBD at my house. They, they make a CBD one that has 25 milligrams of CBD, which is what Michael or Michael Singer. It's like, it's, um, <laughs> Michael Singer loves CBD <laughs> cardamom. No, no, no. <laughs> oh wait, no, I take that back. Don't, um, don't sue us. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Matthew Walker um, from Why Why We Sleep, uh, the Berkeley scientist out of um, uh, that has a sleep lab in Berkeley, he recommends 25 milligrams of CBD for sleep. And they do some of the best. There's one called Beauty Bubbles that is the best CBD. You wouldn't even know there's CBD in it. That's how you know it's good. You have no idea. You have no idea. There's from a taste perspective. It doesn't taste like weed. <laughs> no. <laughs> that'd be terrible. Yeah, it'd be terrible. <laughs> and it has a bunch of different ad- adaptogens in there as well. But these things are awesome. You can buy them on their website. Um, you can just search like DRAM, D-R-A-M, Sparkling Dram, be- Beverage. DRAMapothecary.com yeah. from Colorado. Anyway, it's it's my yeah. favorite sparkling beverage, and they do direct to consumer. They're not in all the stores yet. But yeah, it's really good. I mean, I I've had, sorry, Kevin, probably like nine of these in the last. It's all good. Twenty four hours. <laughs> They're fantastic. 
What else is on your mind, man? Ah, uh, gosh. Um, just trying to kind of like uh, do less work stuff. Um, not in terms of like taking on less startups, like not actually building stuff, more just investing. And so I've been doing that through True Ventures. Um, and then also just exploring um, rather than do, you know, 20 things at once that I want to explore and get excited about picking two or three and then just really following through on them and doing them really deep. So, you know, this summer for me was all about, um, cause I live in the Pacific Northwest now it was all about mushrooms. And so, you know, I went out and bought, um, a couple thousand mushroom plugs, um, cut down some, uh, oak trees, not, oak, not big oak trees, but branches and then inoculated, um, those branches with lion's mane and a couple other specimens. So that means just, just to paint a picture, you're drilling holes into these logs that kind of simulate branches that would have fallen exactly. in the forest. Exactly. And then you're 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 drilling about ejecting mushroom spores into this wood. Right. So you drill about a inch into the wood, um, <clears throat> and then you get these little wooden dowels that are inoculated. So they look like little, you know, pieces of round peg wood and they are all frosty with like, you know, fungi growing on them um, or mycelium, I guess. And then you pound it into the log with like just a, a rubber mallet and then you put a thin layer of wax on the outside of that to prevent um, anything else from getting in there. Um, and then you cover them mostly in the summer with like, because it get, does get a little hot here and so we cover them with some, like some shade cloth and I went out there and watered them kind of once a day just kind of keep the logs a little moist and then in the fall, <clears throat> either this year or next year in the fall, um, the lion's mane will really start to just come out of them. And I'll have these massive lion's mane that I'll turn into, uh, chop them up, uh, saute it with a little bit of uh, garlic and butter. And you'll have just an amazing um, uh, mushroom that is also really good for the brain. There's been a lot of studies done on lion's mane in the brain and brain health um, and uh, helping you with memories and recall. And it's, yeah, it's good stuff. You are also doing a lot of fasting. Yes. You want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, so, I talked to you, you know, when we checked in, when I first got here and uh, we, were, we were chatting about fasting and you're like, yeah, I've been fasting for 18 hours now. And I was like, oh, really? Like, how often are you doing that? And then we had a whole discussion about it. But yeah. How I mean, often? Yeah. Wh what are you using? Well, I, you know, I started Zero, the fasting app, uh -huh. um, about two years ago. And that really has, has taken off. We've had, um, gosh, close to, I think over 40 million fast now or something like that. It's really wild. Yeah. And we've, we've got a, a million people fasting on a, a month. Um, and it's growing like crazy. Zero. Um, yeah. And it's completely free. Um, Peter Tia just joined as the chief medical officer to really help put some medical rigor around what you should be doing, especially with extended fasting. You know, yeah. there's like magnesium and some other supplements and things you want to be considering when you're doing longer, especially water only fasts. So, um, you know, for me, I do a quarterly, uh, five day fast. Um, and then I will try and do, uh, at least five days a week of 18 hours. Um, and that for me, I can find, you know, I, I, I gotta tell you, I still do love those. These Portland beers out here are really good. <laughs> and I know is I, well, this is, this is the hell that I have to face, right? Because I love like meditation yeah. and all these things, but I also like to have a couple of beers. So, so on, on the other side, Kevin is fasting 18 hours a day. All of his other calories he consumes are from beer. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, I have a window of two hours where I just get hammered. No, it's no. seriously, though, um, in the summertime, the beers are, beers are so amazing that I will just become a little piggy and I'll just get super fat yeah. um, because I'm just having these amazing beers and they go right to my gut. I find that at 18 hours, 
um, I can pretty much throw anything at me. Not that I, I want to, cause I want to try and eat healthy and, and pretty well-rounded, but, um, I can slim up quite well, um, and not, and not have issues with weight, which, um, the dads, my, my dad's side of the family was all obese and had heart disease and all that stuff. So it's something I take pretty, pretty seriously and try and maintain, um, you know, a pretty lean physique. So, um, 18 hours is kind of my sweet spot there. When you do your five day fasts once a quarter, are those water fasts? Or are they fast mimicking diet fasts? I, I did only one uh, five day water fast, and it was so brutal. <laughs> it was it was brutal not because of the hunger, but because of the sleep. Yeah, I had a really hard time sleeping, and Rap, I got rapid really heart cold. rate. Yeah, exactly, rapid heart rate, all that good stuff. And magnesium will help with a little bit of that stuff, but. Um, yeah, you, you really want to, if you ever do anything like that, you want to talk to a doctor, be under you their supervision. supervision. 100%. You really want supervision. So I'm doing something called a um, fasting uh, mimetic, which is like you do um, limited calories, about 500 calories a day. So it's like the Walter Longo yes. FMD, fast, yeah. fast mimicking diet. Exactly. So this is, uh, Walter Longo is a scientist out of uh, USC, um, and he basically developed this protocol for cancer patients. Um, it really helps reduce um, the effects of uh, chemotherapy. So you're not getting a lot of the nausea and things of that nature. Um, and makes, makes it more effective too, more effective. as I understand it. Yeah. I mean, and, and we know friends, I mean, I'm not going to mention names, but oh, he's who, come out the CEO oh, of yes. zero. Oh, great. Right. right now, Mike Mazur has come out and talked about this. He had stage four cancer Remarkable. and used, uh, this, this fasting as part of his regimen with in conjunction with chemotherapy pre-treatment. Yeah, you would do a three-day fast or something along those uh, lines. Yeah, I think it was two days two prior days. to chemo, and then during chemo, and then two days after. So that was his five days, and he was uh, in a lot better shape. I remember one time he called me up and he's like, "I didn't fast for my last round of chemo, and I'm just obliterated." Like he could really tell the difference. And they have Walter has done some amazing work, and um, you can go and, and search his work on YouTube, and you'll see. The, the videos of, of the rats and mice that he's he's uh, inoculated with chemotherapy and he does the fasting ones with the non-fasting ones. And the ones that have fasted are running around the cages, same dose of chemotherapy, and the ones that are that are uh, have e- eaten food are just like on their sides. Just well, like, I want to say that that was also, if I'm rem- remembering correctly, Mike's experience where yeah. he did the fasting and uh, other folks he got to know who were undergoing treatment at the same time were like laid out on the couch, yeah. having a tough time moving. And he was doing like 10 mile runs. Yeah. He was running, which is crazy. Um, so it's, you know, there's the one piece of actually the one study that I really love was this one that, um, they had these women, um, that had had breast cancer, but were in remission and it was something like 2,500 women. It was a decent sized pool, um, they have them do just a very simple circadian rhythm kind of fast, which is, you know, you don't have any food after sunset and then you fast for 13 hours. So it's mostly just kind of like, you know, sleeping sun up, you're allowed to eat. Yeah. Basically, basically. And, um, of those women that followed the protocol, they had a 36 or 38%, um, reduction in reoccurrence of breast cancer just by fasting 13 hours, which is nothing. That is the easiest fast you could do. So um, there's a lot of benefits to it in terms of inflammation markers, in terms of your uh, obviously better glucose levels if you're not nighttime snacking. You don't have elevated glucose when you go to bed, which is huge. I think we blew the nighttime snacking yesterday. Well, you went whole hog on that tub of ice cream. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I went whole hog. What is <laughs> Well, it was, right. I would say it was we, we split it. Yes, 
engage in some behaviors that make make one eat ice cream, <laughs> indulge in things like ice cream. <laughs> Uh, that ice cream was amazing. Yeah, I don't know what that is, but it has this layer of like ganache. ganache yes, it's about, the chocolate. It's got like a, it's got about a quarter inch of ganache on the top with sea salt on top of that, oh. and then it's a caramel ice cream underneath. What it. is that stuff? Do it's you know Ruby the name? Jewel, dude. It's a local place what is it here. Called? Ruby Jewel. It is unbelievable. Yeah. If you don't want to eat an entire pint of ice cream, do not buy it because it will not last. Yeah, that's the problem I have. I, 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 cause it's local here and they always come out with these summer flavors with like the strawberries and stuff. And so you can see why I do the 18 hour fast. <laughs> <laughs> I really am good most of the time. I, but I do go off the rails. I'm like you, dude, you used to do those cheat days. And yeah. I, I remember going with you in the morning to the bakery and you get these massive bear claws. Oh yeah. They're delicious. And just put those, those, those were like huge. Those were like oh, I miss, know, nine inch bear claws. Oh, I miss those. They're so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, man. Time for, uh, time for dinner. Yeah. I think we've got to go to dinner soon. Anything else to, to plug or talk about? Uh, well, I would say. Cause I'm going to post this on my podcast too. You have any, like, do you talk about the fact that you're doing anything with the new book or anything or no? to cut this out. Uh, well, no, I can talk about it. And actually, I'm surprised I haven't told you this. So I was working on a new book. I'm not going to... Oh my God, you pulled the plug on it? I pulled the plug. Oh my God. So this God. is a book about... I'll give... This is an, an exclusive. So I was working on a book entirely about saying no. Right. And... Well, I knew that. Gathering... I know you knew that. Oh. People listening <laughs> Oh yeah, that. there's other people listening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a book on saying no and uh, gathering tactics and systems and rules and language and so on from many, many people who are good at this. And... Uh, one of the challenges of writing a book on no, at least for me, is that I kept on coming up with all these reasons why I shouldn't write the book. <laughs> and so I said no to the book. I returned the advance. I canceled the contract. Wow. Holy shit. But I have, and I could I could go into that. Well, let me go into it. Let me. I think this is maybe worth talking yeah, about for yeah, a minute. Yeah. What I realized was it was putting a real strain on my relationship with my girlfriend, who I love dearly. And she's awesome, by the way. This is the first yeah. time I've met her, which is crazy. She's great and yeah. uh, really, really wonderful. And I was putting a strain on the relationship, and particularly, I'd misjudged how long the book would take to do. I thought I could sprint over the summer and do it in three to four months. Turned out it was going to be much more complex, would require a lot more writing on my part, and would have to be extended at least six months. And that would require canceling the vast majority of things in my calendar and uh, disappointing my girlfriend on a number of levels that were important to me and her that, uh, that I not bend on. And I was like, for what, for what to write a book for, uh, the world, broadly speaking, to jeopardize this relationship? No, like that's that's Dude, a that's a decision that young Tim would have been like, "Fuck I that." I was just gonna say that. Yeah, young Tim, younger Tim. I mean, I, I'm embarrassed to say, probably not that much younger Tim, but younger Tim uh, would have viewed returning in advance and canceling a book as a it's a gigantic sign of weakness and quitting. And I've spent a lot of my life developing a very high pain tolerance and being able to just in, out endure. And I would have forced it. But 
I was able to zoom out. And I, th- I mean, it sounds like this is right along the lines of the surrender mm-hmm. course, right along the lines of the awareness. I was able to zoom out and say, wait a second. I'm viewing this as a very binary thing. Maybe this isn't a binary thing. And what I realized was, at this point in my career, I'm very fortunate that I don't have to publish anything on any given timeline. And by returning the advance and canceling the book, I still have 200 pages of material. That's a lot of material. I was just going to ask you about that. And uh, I'll I'll give a teaser for folks. Uh, I'm going to completely redesign and relaunch the the website, the Tim.blog website, which hasn't been done in forever. Do you have a designer? It's all, it's basically done. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, Crazy. It's basically done. You and did it yourself. <laughs> my, I got my, back into Microsoft the front page. HTML. <laughs> yeah, you, looks great. Looks Dreamweaver. like GeoCities. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, great, great, well, help, great help from Matt Mullenweg and the folks at Automatic. And uh, I am actually going to get back to writing on a regular schedule. Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to start putting stuff out. That's the plan, at least in a way that mimics how this all started. I, I mean, you- before the book, before the four-hour work week even, the blog was what helped launch things. I was just going to ask you if you were going to, like, why not use this content? I mean, it's going to be great oh, content. I'm, go- I'm, gonna, I'm going to use a bunch of it. And That's there's awesome. some fantastic stuff. And uh, I, I can say there's some fantastic stuff because it's not dependent on me. I, I really found some people who are just fucking incredible at this and give me a little hint on the book though i want to know like since we're doing a little exclusive exclusive yeah. here um <laughs> what is one thing that you learned okay let me put let me phrase it to, uh, put it to you this way what was the aha moment for you where you realize like wow i have something that is new and unique enough that i need to go write a book about this like what did you what was that moment yeah so i'll, I'll answer it maybe in a way that is a bit lateral, but I decided to write the book, not because I said, I know the magic sauce for giving the answer that people need. It was because I wanted to gather more tools and resources for myself Mm. to become better at it myself. Turns out that I I think I'm pretty good at it. Um, In other words, I would go to a lot of friends asking them for advice, and they're like, dude, you're the best person I know at doing this. You should be writing that. And in some cases, uh, that that was true. In other cases, there are folks like our friend Josh, who's incredible at it, but he doesn't view himself that way. Right? Oh, Cook? Yeah. Oh, he's really good at it. He's really good. But but in his position, in his work relative to maybe some other Michael Jordans of saying, no, he wouldn't, he did, he, he didn't consider himself to be very good, even though he is, Mm -hmm. uh, looking at any normal sort of group of people. He's excellent. Uh, so it started out as almost all my books do as a very personal journey to learn how other people do this so that I could borrow their principles and techniques and so on. The aha moment I would say that I had, and this also coincided with realizing, oh shit, this is going to take at least another six to nine months. This is not a sprint for three months. And I can do a lot in three months. I mean, I did 200 pages in three months, but I was like, to get it right, to make it, because I have no interest in writing good books. And I'm not saying my books are the best thing since sliced bread. I'm not saying they're good literature compared to Tolstoy or anyone you might pull out of a hat. But my goal, at least, is not to write a good book. Because uh, if you're going to put in that much effort, 
that's like running 20 miles of a marathon. It's like, no, do the last 6.2, which is really like the second half of the marathon, right. which is the hardest, because you want to put out a great book. And I was like, all right, to do a good book, I could do a good book, and my fans would buy it, and it would be helpful, but it wouldn't be enough. And I'll tell you what that means. You can get the best language in the world, template emails, auto responses, and so on, to give people. And that's part of what I thought I needed. And it's, it's necessary, but not sufficient. If you don't do a pretty major psychological overhaul and develop this awareness that we've been talking about, mm-hmm. like the observer status of your own patterns and stories mm-hmm. and codependence also, where you feel like you're responsible for managing the emotional states and responses of other people, right? the templates and so on are are going to seem really attractive and then a week later you're going to be back in your email doing all the same shit. It's not going to work. And Crazy. You should write this book. This sounds awesome. (laughs) I I wrote a lot of it. I wrote a lot of it. And uh, uh, there were were some really important pieces to touch upon. Uh, And what I realized is that you have topics that are sort of independently treated well in like five different genres. And to write a book on saying no that actually works, like that provides a systematic approach that really, really, really works, you kind of have to take those five genres and put them all into a book. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm curious, was this, um, did you plan on having this be something that you could apply to things outside of, say, a work scenario? Because I, I know a lot of people would yeah. say, Tim, like, dude, that's nice that you have 100,000 people wanting things from you. I don't have those demands on me, yeah. but I think there's even even more power in saying no to things like Netflix or saying yeah. no to something else and, and just sitting. And it's not, yeah. it's not that you have to fill the time with something. That's like, yeah. I feel like that's what we're always trying to do. Like, how can I fill the time with something better? Right. But it really is. All right. So you're, you're also touching on something that made this book very difficult, which is when you start to really investigate no and the re and a book on saying no is also uh, has to be a book on why people have trouble saying no, mm-hmm. which is also a book on why people say yes to too many things. Right. And before you know it, the book is about everything in the fucking universe. Right. Like it just it bloats. Sure. And very quickly, I, I and I put I put in a quote in actually the first chapter from John Muir, I think it was, which was in effect like whenever you try to separate out one thing in the world, you real, you find it hitched to the rest of the universe and, uh, constraining this book was very, very challenging. I bet. Uh, because as you pointed out, there are many different types so many rabbit holes. They're to go down, very, right? there are many different types of temptations to which you should say no. Broadly speaking, they could be put into two categories, internally generated distractions and then sort of externally imposed invitations, distractions, requests, etc. And they both depend on certain types of psychological reformatting. And I decided to focus on some of the, the, the commonalities. But the book, that's <laughs> not going to be a book. But when I say it, it's not going to be a book, here's the thing. I could st- I could put a bunch of stuff on the blog, fine-tune yeah. it, make it better, and then publish it as a book why a year just, from now. Why don't you just do a series of blog posts to start? Well, that's the plan. Yeah, that's that'll be plan. great. And then if I decide to do a book, it's going to be a better book if I do it later. It'll be more refined. And uh, the the saying no is is really not limited 
or specific to work or personal. Some of the scripts are specific to work or personal. But it's like, because say declining going to a work meeting where someone of a similar level in the hierarchy as yourself or below is requesting your attendance is very different from say declining the baby shower invitation from someone who thinks that you're right. their best friend or one of their best friends yeah, and you don't feel emotions, and yeah. you don't feel the same right. about them. That's different. Right. And the language you're going to use is probably very different. The consequences could be very different. The way you might have to do damage control on those consequences, which is also a chapter that I started working on, is like if shit really goes sideways and you feel like you need to fix it, what do you do? What's the cleanup procedure? How how do you become <laughs> like the the Harvey Keitel character in Pulp Fiction, <laughs> like the the yeah. cleaner? What do you need to do? And uh, a lot of those skill sets apply not only to work situations. I think that work is actually the easiest, even though many people may not view it that way. Uh, even in the beginning stages of your career, or you, when you feel like you don't have many options, uh, the fact of the matter is you always, now I'm like getting into it, but you always have options. You always have options. They might just not be very attractive to you. Right? You always have options, always. And uh, so the book, the book is also... Uh, was intended to explore that. Like, why do we artificially constrain our options? And if you are seeing a binary choice of A versus B and both are unattractive, what are you missing? And can you zoom out? What are the tools for zooming out so you can see the other paths you could take? Uh, so there, there were aspects of it that were really fun to work on that were really, really useful to me immediately. Right. I would, I would, and that was, that was part of the litmus test for each chapter it was like, all right, is this something that I can literally use in the next 12 hours? Yeah. I want these templates, dude. I need, I really need no templates. <laughs> I've, I've got a bunch of them. I've got tons. That's awesome. <laughs> so just, just like, I, the book I, to sell I, a template I, I, pack. Yeah. Tim Tim's template pack of like saying no. Tim Tim's t- template pack upsell when all that fails and you come back and you have all of your old behavior still intact. <laughs> right. Here's the psychological makeover. Right. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's something I'm really excited about. And uh, I'll, I'll just give a shout out also and a congratulations to the entire team at Johns Hopkins for uh, the successful launch of the world's largest psychedelic research center. That's awesome. And the first psychedelic research and consciousness research center in the United States ever, which just launched at Johns Hopkins. Well, and we should definitely mention, you probably won't, but dude, you've helped fund a lot of this, which is a big deal. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, my pleasure. I know so many people... Um, that had reached out to me being like, I can't believe Tim did this, blah, blah. Because <laughs> they don't know you directly, but they know yeah. that I know you. And yeah. it's like, people are freaking out about it, dude. It's yeah. a big deal. It was, it was, uh, it's, it is a big deal symbolically and practically for the field. A lot of conditions that are poorly treated or viewed as untreatable currently, whether that is, say, end of life anxiety after terminal cancer diagnoses, treatment-resistant depression, eating disorders like anorexia nervosa, which has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disorder. A lot wow. of people don't realize that. Nicotine addiction, opioid dependence, et cetera. PTSD from PTSD war, from like, war yeah. sexual trauma. Uh, these uh, conditions, uh, 
seem to be treatable through paradigm shifting frameworks utilizing psychedelic compounds. And uh, the, the, the results thus far are, are pretty staggering. I mean, they're, they're, they're very unlike anything that's been seen in the world of psychiatry up to this point. And the center at Hopkins, uh, for me, was about a year and a half in the making. So it was, it was a very, uh, uh, very involved process. And uh, there were uh, a couple of, uh, of folks who, who along with, with my contribution, uh, were able to get this funded. The foundation who provided the most money was the the Stephen and Alexandra Cohen Foundation. They've done a lot of incredible work with veterans, and uh, they put in a, a large slug, uh, about half, maybe a little bit more than half of the total required, which is $17 million, uh, for this center, which is a five-year commitment. It's very important because it allows... Hopkins to not only uh, attract but also retain some of the best people uh, in the country for doing this type of research. And then you have uh, yours truly, Matt Mullenweg, just a beautiful human being, yeah. CEO of Automatic, which I mentioned earlier, Auto M A T T. I see if you see what he did there. Yeah, <laughs> has about a thousand distributed employees. Uh, they they run WordPress.com among other things. Uh, Blake Mykoski, founder of Tom's. Oh, awesome. I didn't know Blake was involved. That's great. Yeah, Blake's involved. And then uh, Craig Nuremberg, who's an investor, uh, uh, who's who's done some incredible things. He's very shy, so I won't get into much. But it was important that everybody be willing to allow their names to be used for this. I did not want any anonymous donors yeah, uh, because it just reinforces uh, undeserved stigma for these compounds that have so much therapeutic potential and very, very demonstrated low toxicity at this point and sure. anti-addictive properties. So uh, that was a year and a half. And it's, it's, you've had this feeling, I'm sure, but it's kind of like after so much work and so much looking forward to this moment off in the distant future, after shipping it, there's this kind of, uh, it's an odd feeling. There's this kind of like postpartum what now. Yeah. Oh shit. Like we kind of, kind of shipped it. And of course the scientists now get to do the fun stuff and the exciting stuff on their side. But my job is mostly done. And, uh, let me ask you a question before we, before we wrap up. Um, this is, uh, I know they had been doing some research there. Mm -hmm. Um, was it just a very small scale? Like what did this funding enable them to do? Yeah. That's different than what they were doing before. So Hopkins has done a lot of, of research when you consider how many sessions say they've administered of psilocybin, which is in the hundreds, so probably somewhere between, I'm guessing here, but between 500 and 700 sessions, uh, that has really reinvigorated the entire space. So some of their early studies, helped to galvanize the resurgence of scientific research. What the center allows them to do is dedicate their full attention to this field. Uh, Up to this point, and this is true at other places like NYU, UCLA, uh, UCSF, uh, Yale, uh, people who've wanted to do psychedelic research have generally needed to spend anywhere from, let's just call it 30 to 75% of their time writing grants. We have a scientist in the room. (laughs) My wife. Your wife, Daria. Uh, 
so she's seeing this firsthand, I'm sure, that uh, people need to write grants to ensure they have salaries. Right. Uh, and in the case of psychedelics, because there is effectively zero federal funding from agencies like the NIH or NIMH, uh, there's there's a, a relative lack of funding, and therefore these people who truly in their heart of hearts would like to spend 100% of their time unlocking the full potential of psychedelics and understanding the mechanisms need to write grants for other studies that don't involve psychedelics just to pay the bills. Right. And so you have the most productive teams in the world, oh, including yeah. Hopkins, who are spending only a fraction of their time on psychedelic research. Yeah, because writing so, grants is a, a whole job by itself. It's and a whole like, job by yeah. itself. So when you create a center that has, say, five years of salary support, you just open the floodgates. And uh, I think the, I think the quote was from uh, perhaps the, uh, the chair of the psychiatry department, but, but one of the higher-ups at Hopkins who said this should allow a quantum leap forward in the, in the productivity of of scientific researchers oh, so awesome, in dude. the world in the realm of psychedelics what it also allows and this is this is why i hope that the centers is catalyzes multiple centers around the country and more ambitious thinking around building big things in this space is that it also allows huge cost savings per study so let's just say this opioid dependent study by itself done piecemeal because there's no sharing of resources, it, you have to recruit and staff each study independently. Otherwise, let's say that might cost, and I am kind of pulling these numbers out of my ass, but something like 3.2, and then within the structure of the center, it's like 1.7, 1.8. Hmm. The cost savings are enormous. So you just get a lot more done much more quickly. Right. And if you look at the opioid crisis, you look at depression, you look at the costs associated with some of these conditions, these are problems that are compounding, right? And I think it pays to be ambitious and aggressive with funding tools that could identify completely new pathways and mechanisms of action by which we can treat these things that, up until this point, have been largely untreatable. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a very noble cause and something that I've been tracking for the last few years and watching these kind of studies come out. And um, as someone that has benefited from a high dose um, psilocybin guided session, uh, I can tell you that all of the, uh, or a large chunk of the kind of uh, trauma that I was dealing with, with my father being so verbally aggressive over the years and the causing like that impression upon me, I was able just to release in six hours, which was amazing. It's, it's wild. And the yeah. lightness you feel from that afterwards um, sticks with you. Yeah. And so, I mean, and I have it easy. Like, think about the people that are addicted to opioids or, you know, all these other people that came back from, uh, from fighting wars and have PTSD. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many applications for it. Yeah. It's really exciting. Yeah. The, and then there's some organizations, if you're, if you're not interested uh, in engaging directly with universities, although if if, if you happen to have a close relationship with one and are, say, an alumni or trustee providing funding, then consider this as an avenue of exploration. It's it's remarkable. And uh, yeah, how can people help out? Like, is is it? I mean, obviously the funding is done for this next five years, but can people actually still donate and get involved and extend that runway? Some they, or? they can, and they can do it at other universities. What I'm going to do. Harkening uh, back to what I said earlier about relaunching the blog. One of my my top priorities when I relaunch the entire site is to put out a post which is effectively the top 10 options for supporting the psychedelic scientific 
renaissance and there will i will point out the targets that i think are extremely high leverage that's in awesome. different places and just keep that up to date and right I, so it'll be a resource for people it'll basically. be a resource and uh an easy place to learn more is maps.org and uh, I would also recommend that people check out a documentary. If you want to see what these sessions actually look like, actual session footage, go to tim.blog forward slash trip, and that will take you to a documentary called Trip of Compassion. It's very intense, uh, but but worth checking out, and you can learn more. Sweet. Dude, well, thank you for doing that. That's uh, I know that you got a massive New York Times article out of, out of that as well. Yeah, it was wild. Um, yeah, thanks to uh, thanks to everybody who helped make that happen. Um, Benedict Carey, the writer, who really took the time to to ask a lot of questions of a lot of people and look at the nuances. Uh, Alan Burdick, uh, the the editor, and uh, certainly all the people kind of behind the scenes. Uh, Michael Pollan also for yeah. his great work and ongoing work. Oh man, and the credibility that, that he added to the space by launching that book is so massive. How to change your mind, yeah. which is really, really uh, just added so much momentum to uh, to the scientific research and uh, increased the interest level of potential funders and allies and so on who recognize that we have we have a lot of problems that are, are not being well addressed and in in uh, oncology and neurology and immunology all these other fields have been these massive breakthroughs over the last few decades and in psychiatry there have been v- relatively few uh, discoveries that would be considered breakthroughs very few and uh, if we look at the costs uh, of mental illness, the prevalence of mental illness, the number of people that I'm sure people listening know who take antidepressants and nonetheless are still depressed, uh, those affected by opioid dependence and addiction. Uh, the, the scale of these problems is so gigantic that if yeah. there are tools that have demonstrated low toxicity and anti-addictive properties, they're worth investigating. So I'm uh, as gung-ho as ever and uh, they're not panaceas there are risks involved but i think the risk benefit ratio is 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 incredibly compelling uh so to be continued awesome well that is it for this uh yeah. episode of the random show <laughs> yes it is slash tim show slash kevin show depending on what feed you're listening yeah, to this. yeah exactly where can people find you yeah so people can find me uh at kevin rose on instagram kevinrose.com also links to my podcast there um that i do every few weeks um and i think that's it yeah cool people can find me at tim.blog the podcast tim ferris show and uh, the newsletter I have a free newsletter that goes out every Friday to about one, somewhere between 1.6 and 2 million people now. And Five Bullet Fridays, the five coolest things or most interesting things I've found that week. Uh, a lot of them get recommended to me by you. <laughs> Are you serious? Uh, well, no, I mean, uh, like every once in a while, some oh, of them make in. Something. Yeah. Uh, so Five Bullet Friday, you can just find it at tim.blog forward slash Friday. And that's free. It'll always be free. And that's uh, one of the things I enjoy doing each week. Sweet. Awesome. All right, let's get some food. Off to food. Later, guys. See ya. Hey, guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? And would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share 
the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Hiring can be hard, can be super, super expensive and very painful if you get it wrong. I certainly have had that experience multiple times. I've made a lot of mistakes. I am not eager to repeat any of them. So I try to do as much vetting as possible now on the front end. Today, with more qualified candidates than ever, but certainly more noise than ever, employers need a hiring solution that helps them find the right people for their businesses without wasting time, without wasting money. LinkedIn Jobs provides just that. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills that you specify that you're looking for so you can quickly find and hire the right person. They also look beyond work skills, so collaboration, creativity, adaptability, to connect you with candidates who match your business perfectly. They have endless business-specific data points that help them to massage this, and that which can help you to find the best fit. LinkedIn can make sure your job post gets in front of people you want to hire, people with the skills, qualifications, and other insights that help LinkedIn paint a better picture of potential candidates. It's no wonder that great candidates are hired every eight seconds on average on LinkedIn. That's pretty wild. Every eight seconds. So find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on LinkedIn. Just visit linkedin.com slash Tim for more details. Again, that's linkedin.com slash Tim to get $50 off your first job post. Let's check it out. LinkedIn.com slash Tim. Terms and conditions do apply. This episode of The Tim Ferriss Show is brought to you by 99designs. 99designs is a global creative platform that makes it easy for you to find an amazing designer and create designs you'll love. From logos to branding to packaging to books, you name it, they have it. And I've used them for just about everything. 99designs is the go-to creative resource for any budget. I've used them for years now for book covers, for instance, mock-ups of The 4-Hour Body, which went on to become a number one New York Times bestseller, illustrations for the multi-volume Tao of Seneca, including the cover, and many other creative projects. I've been very impressed by the quality of their work. Most recently, I used 99designs to update the illustrations and layout of my 5 Morning Rituals ebook. The illustrations worked out great, I loved working with the designer we selected, and I plan to work with him on more projects in the future, and that's something you can do. You don't have to start from scratch every time. And right now, my listeners can get $20 off plus a free $99 upgrade on their first design contest. Simply submit a brief on the site describing what you need, and designers who are interested in your project, often from around the world, will submit concepts for you to choose from. You refine as you go, give feedback, and once you're ready, you choose one to finalize. It's a great way to get started and find the right match. A great designer and a great design at a great price. So head to 99designs.com forward slash Tim to learn more or get started today. You can also see examples of some of the work that I have done with designers on 99designs. So check it out, 99designs.com forward slash Tim.